0: It's a hot summer day in July of 1518 in Strasbourg, a city in the far east of modern day France. People in the city go about their regular hustle and bustle. Farmers sell what produce they can find in their fields after yet another brutal winter. Butchers slaughter animals in pens next to gutters clogged with all manner of filth, and a hailer stands on a box with today's newspaper detailing the new advancements of the heathen armies of the Ottoman Empire in Wallachia and Hungary, striking fear into the devout Christian passersby. In the midst of this, a young boy bursts into his home to alert his mother, who is busy weaving a blanket in the corner, that there's a woman dancing in the street with a strange look in her eyes. The mother shrugs it off as another drunkard going about their old shenanigans in public. Then, the boy says something that makes her blood chill ever so slightly. He says, but Mama, she isn't smiling. She doesn't look like she's having any fun at all. She looks scared. And there's no music playing. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened in history, in the past. Real-life stories of weird, crazy human events. We're kind of on a, we're kind of on a crazy events train right now. I'm going to keep riding that train for a little bit, because that's what people, people seem to be interested in. So let's talk about some weird stuff that's going on. This week, we're talking about the Dancing Plague of 1518 in Strasbourg, which is right on the border of France and Austria, today. Back then it was in the Holy Roman Empire, that's what we're talking about today, it's gonna be crazy. And today, uh, get ready, cause we're doing a deep dive not only into history, but into psychology, and particularly mass human psychology, believe it or not, we're going to talk about that a little bit, it's going to be really fun. Before we begin, remember, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, drop me a five-star review, let me know that you enjoy what I'm talking about. It means a lot to me, and gets more people involved with this conversation, and it gives me a little ego boost, which, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. So, uh, I'm not going to waste too much more of your time, um, let's get right into the meat and potatoes here, let's talk about it. The Dancing Plague of 1518, let's do it. The exact day that the dancing epidemic began is—it's tough to track down. We—we don't—we don't really know for sure. There's a couple different accounts, but what we do know is that in sometime of July of 1518, beginning in the city of Strasbourg, located in modern-day France, but at that point part of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, that's where it started. By all accounts, it began by a single with a single person. The identity of the person is up for debate, but most of the central journal entries and uh, chronicles that we have from the time name a single woman, her name was Frau Trofea, as the origin of the epidemic. And here's how that went. One day, for no apparent reason, Frau walked into the middle of a busy street in Strasbourg and just began dancing. Now, this was a little bit abnormal, but what was more abnormal is that there was no music anywhere. It'd be weird if Frau came out and did a little jig in the street for no reason, but and ev- everyone would go about their business as usual after she stopped. But she didn't stop. She danced vigorously and with reckless abandon all through the day and late into the night when, bathed in sweat, she collapsed in the middle of the road and immediately fell into a deep sleep. Now, her sleep only lasted several hours, before she rose and instantly resumed her songless dance. She danced through the whole next day and again into the night, with fatigue causing her movements to become more disjointed and erratic and even violent, before she eventually collapsed onto the street again, falling into another deep sleep. On the third day, she rose again, wobbled on bruised legs and bloody feet to begin her dance again, and by then, a crowd of 30 or so onlookers gathered to witness the strange display, some of them blaming devils, others blaming the divine, yet others simply claiming that she was ill and that maybe she was mad or she was crazy, you know, whatever. But eventually, the opinion of the crowd was won over by those who believed the dancing woman was a sign from God. And I think that had something to do with the whole, she danced for three days and, you know, thing like that. Um, and she was placed in a wagon to be carried to a nearby sacred mountaintop accordingly. However, that's where the story takes a turn for the extra weird, and this is where it goes down in the history books. Because the next morning, the local authorities found that approximately 30 people had taken the place of Frau, and the street where she had begun dancing was now filled with people, all thrashing wildly without a lick of music being played anywhere in the vicinity. And the next day, there were more, and then after that, there were more. And so the city government starts panicking as this strange dancing trend starts spreading. From the single woman on the narrow street, the dancing traveled into meeting houses, into dining rooms, into great halls and public spaces, town squares, where dozens and then hundreds of people began dancing randomly and erratically. No one would pause to eat, drink, or rest until they collapsed from exhaustion. In the city's archives, I mean, we have this note today. Uh, There's this note, and it's dated in July of 1518, and it says, quote, There's been a strange epidemic lately going amongst the folk, so that many in their madness began dancing, which they kept up day and night without interruption until they fell unconscious. Many have died of it. End of that quote. Now, according to this chronicle, people started dying from the constant dancing, which could make sense considering it was July and August in France, which can get hot. Dancing all day would not be ideal under such conditions. One chronicle claims that there were as many as 15 people dying every day before the strange dancing plague subsided around early September-ish, leaving the city weary and unnerved by one of the strangest dramas in recorded history. Now, that's the story of the Dancing Plague. And obviously, I mean, we're only six minutes into this, almost seven minutes into this podcast. So obviously, there's more I'm going to talk about here. But uh, that's really all we have from this story. There's not a whole lot of other material to draw from. So what happened? Now, let's get this out of the way really quick. I don't have the answer. I don't have any idea why the hell all these people started dancing in the streets of Strasbourg in the heat of summer in 1518. I genuinely don't know. But after a lot of research... I have some ideas. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what actually happened here, but there are some facts that can be corroborated as true, with several sources citing the same events. First of all, the Dancing Plague did take place in Strasbourg, modern-day France, in the summer of 1518. And somewhere between 50 and 400 people took part in it, likely on the upper end of that number. Second, it did start with a single person, probably named Frau Trofea, as four of the six most detailed accounts attribute it to her. And third, it did not seem to be have to have been caused by any presenting physical illness. Those are the three things that we know absolutely for sure. Now, the fact that is probably true but cannot be directly corroborated is that people died from it. While it would make sense that dancing all day in the French summer heat with no air conditioning could lead to heat exhaustion, heat stroke, and death, only a portion of the chronicles of the event report deaths and those chronicles report different numbers. I believe, understanding the conditions people were dancing all day and night in, that people did pass away from this thing, but again, I can't say for sure. Now, knowing all that, Really, in the end, we can only speculate why this happened, and a few theories have been presented. So, a large group of people start dancing hysterically in a city in France for a month and a half and no one can explain why. One of the first theories presented was that was, was a food poisoning. Now, there's this fungi, it's called ergot, and it grows pretty much commonly on the grains that are baked into bread. When consumed by humans, ergot can cause fever, a burning feeling in the limbs, and muscle spasms. Psychological symptoms can include hallucinations, psychosis, and mania. Though ergot can be used for me- medicinal purposes as it is today, it has been suspected as the cause of several wild phenomenon throughout history, such as crazy Viking fertility cult practices, Greek rituals, and even the Salem witch trials, though these claims are a little bit of a stretch. While it's possible that a bad harvest of grain infected with ergot was baked into the city's bread supply, a single ingestion of ergot would only cause symptoms for a day or two, not months at a time. In addition, long-term ergot exposure makes most of the acute psychological symptoms go away and gives way to things like gangrene, large blisters and sores, blindness, and eventually death. Since none of the accounts of the Dancing Plague mention, you know, gangrene, large blisters and sores, blindness, you know, they they don't mention those things. I find widespread ergotism unlikely as the culprit for the dancing plague. I'm going to rule that out. I don't think that's what happened. Maybe one or two people, but I don't think overall that's what happened. Another theory is that the dancing plague was was caused because the town was actually beset by large groups of demons that possessed these people. Now, obviously, I can't prove or disprove this. I can't say with definitive proof that demons are real or not, and if demons are real, and according to the various religious texts that say they are, all they want to do is experience the feeling of being in a human body, then descending on a city full of human bodies that are all crowded together and possessing as many people as possible would achieve that goal. Is it possible? Yeah. But if so, that begs the question, why Strasbourg? As far as we know, there were no large occult gatherings happening here. It was a city of regular people, so that one I think is also a bit of a stretch. For me, the most plausible theory here is that the Dancing Plague of 1518 in Strasbourg was an odd but not totally isolated episode of Mass Hysteria. What is Mass Hysteria? In sociology and psychology, mass hysteria is a phenomenon that transmits collective illusions of threats, whether real or imaginary, through a population and society as a result of rumors and fear. In medicine, the term is used to describe the spontaneous manifestation, or production of chemicals in the body, of the same or similar hysterical physical symptoms by more than one person. A common type of mass hysteria occurs when a group of people believes that they have a similar disease or ailment, sometimes referred to as mass sociogenic illness or epidemic hysteria. There are a number of documented cases of mass hysteria, the most famous being the Salem Witch Trial. There was also the miracle of the sun in a town in Portugal where dozens of people reported the sun doing odd things as prophesied by a local priest in 1917. In 1962, three girls at a school in Tanzania started laughing hysterically for no reason, and that laughter spread to 95 of the school's 159 pupils, causing the school to shut down and the children to be sent home until the laughter subsided. Some people even say that the panic surrounding the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 presented elements of mass hysteria. <laughs> mass hysteria tends to take place when a population is under periods of widespread prolonged stress. The Salem Witch Trials were carried out by a Puritan population constantly struggling to meet the impossible demands set upon them by their religion, particularly the suppressed female population. When the dramatic retelling of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds went out across the airwaves, it caused a nationwide panic with people actually thinking aliens were attacking Earth. Some reports even contained claims of people committing suicide, though this was disputed. But remember, in 1938, when this went out, the the nation had been in the throes of the Great Depression for years. Nazi Germany was rising, rumors of the Second World War were about to break out, People were under stress, and, and so in, in the school with the laughing hysteria in Tanzania, apparently the school was in staunch control of a group of ultra-traditionalist elders who demanded exact obedience, so it makes sense that eventually students were going to start to crack. In this context, the dancing plague of 1518 could totally make sense. The late 1400s and early 1500s wasn't exactly a stellar time to be living in Western Europe. The land was ridden with pestilence and fear, primarily centered around the teachings of the Catholic Church. The Church had been warning of impending Armageddon for centuries, which is the Christian apocalypse before, in the, before the second coming of Christ. And every year, it just seemed to be nearer and nearer. In the 1490s, a syphilis epidemic rocked Strasbourg, and the devout Catholic leaders of the city declared it punishment from God for the sins of the people. A year later, a failed uprising resulted in a large group of farmers being rounded up and beheaded. The same year, there was a very poor harvest and a lot of people went hungry. These events were seen as divine anger, and the leaders began outlawing most kinds of merriment in the city. There were these severe crackdowns on gambling dens, and there was crackdowns on prostitution. The leaders began regulating extravagance, saying only nuns and priests could wear certain fine articles of clothing and jewelry, which kind of goes against the whole idea of being a nun or a priest, but that's neither here nor there. The people were being strictly regimented. And it led to increased stress in the personal lives of those living in the city. And in addition, reports started circulating of a primal fear rising in the east. The Ottoman Empire, which was virtually when 100% Muslim, was rising. And invading provinces in Eastern Europe. Already the Byzantine Empire had been wiped off the map, the map by the invaders. And they defeated Bulgaria, Serbia, Albania, and Greece. Currently moving on Wallachia, Hungary, and Moldavia, for which it was nearly certain they'd also conquer. I want to go a bit more into this, because I wrote a paper on this whole series of events in college, and I'm very proud of the research that I did. So right in the 1300s and 1400s, the Ottoman Empire was on the rise. The Ottoman Empire was a mighty Islamic imperial state that began around 1300 AD in modern-day Turkey, and began an expansionary campaign downward into Syria, Israel, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and beyond. by By the mid to late 1400s. The empire was nearing its zenith. Their territory was expanding northward as far as Hungary, Moldavia, and Wallachia, which is modern-day Hungary, Romania, and Moldova, eastward toward the Caspian Sea, covering modern-day Armenia and Azerbaijan, southeast to the Persian Gulf, encompassing modern-day Iraq and Kuwait, further south along the west coast of Saudi Saudi Arabia, all the way to modern-day Yemen, Then westward, along the entire southern coast of the Mediterranean, controlling the modern-day coasts of Egypt, Libya, and Algeria. It was big, and they controlled almost the entire Mediterranean Sea. There was a lot of influence happening there. (coughs) Now, the Ottoman Empire is cool and all and really big and domineering, but why are we talking about it in relation to the Dancing Plague of 1518? Well, we gotta put this into context. Remember that my favored theory in terms of the plague was that it was a heightened case of mass hysteria. And when I say plague, I mean Dancing Plague. I don't mean Bubonic Plague. Very different things. But I believe it was mass hysteria, and mass hysteria often takes place when a large population is under high amounts of prolonged stress. The Holy Roman Empire, as you can probably tell by the name, was under strict control of the Catholic Church, and the Church maintained its power through the installation of deep fear within its congregation members of anything that was not specifically Catholic. Cultures and peoples who were not explicitly Catholic were considered barbarous and heathens, and religious practices that were not Catholic were considered pagan. These titles conjured images of godless demons parading through the countryside, raping and pillaging and committing all manner of atrocities wherever they went, with every intent on destroying all of Christianity. Of course, most of these beliefs were ingrained into the populace of the Holy Roman Empire to indoctrinate them into the Catholic Church, rather than to provide a credible resource for information surrounding practices, beliefs, and cultures outside the Church. And for this reason, when the Ottoman Empire, an Islamic state, began expanding its borders into Europe, first conquering Greece, then Bulgaria, then Serbia, and was knocking on Wallachia's door, word reached the people of the Holy Roman Empire, and they did not respond well to it. Of all the religions outside the Catholic Church, the Muslims were considered the worst. I mean, after all... The Catholic Church had raised enough armies to go on a holy crusade against the Muslims four separate times, all fueled by the belief that the Muslims were heathens that needed to be conquered. They needed Jesus! If you want to hear more about the Catholic Church and his techniques of control, listen to my episode, Holistic Medicine, Why the Divide? And if you want to hear more about the incursion of the Ottoman Empire into Europe, listen to my Dracula, The Story of Vlad the Impaler episode. Alright, so news of enormous numbers of Ottoman warriors were marching into Europe, causing great alarm inside the Catholic Church, and so they upped their dosage of anti-Muslim propaganda to the Catholic people in preparation for what they began seeing as an inevitable invasion. So, let's line these up here. By 1500, we have a few bad harvests, a syphilis epidemic, a big crackdown on gambling, prostitution, other kinds of merrymaking, regulation of what people can and can't wear in public, and a grand sense of impending doom at the hands of nameless, faceless people they saw as barbaric monsters. And all of this was on top of the fact that 90% of people living in Strasbourg were living in abject squalor. If you don't know much about everyday living standards in Europe, in the Middle Ages, here's a little, here's a little uh, appetizer, if you will, some onion rings before the meal. An excerpt from John Waller's book, The Dancing Plague. Quote, Fatal maladies were a constant feature of life in this cramped Renaissance city. Piles of excrement from pigs, fowl, dogs, and horses collected in streets and courtyards. In alleys beneath bridges and between buildings, city folk squatted to defecate, their stools and foul odors lingering and attracting swarms of flies. Upper story latrines in the homes of the rich likewise spattered walls and cobbles with feces filth was ubiquitous. The slaked lime used by tanners to strip hair and fat from their animal hides polluted and discolored the water flowing through the city, as did blood from the pigs, boars, cows, and sheep having their throats slit by butchers in the abattoir on the riverbank just south of the cathedral. Records show that hundreds of sheep were slaughtered there Every day, their fluids and entrails washed into the river. High-pitched cries and squeals and the rank smells of scared and dying beasts floated on the air while the water used for drinking and washing carried poisons and the germs of deadly disease. Not a great place to grow up. And that's not to mention that there was an outbreak of bubonic plague just one town over in the early 1500s. And then there were political problems. The region of Alsace, where Strasbourg lies, was in the midst of an economic crisis around 1510, with wheat prices soaring out of control for various reasons. One of the reasons was that the... Oh, dude, get this. One of the reasons is that the clergy of the city were basically the same as the government, and they collected taxes on all the goods purchased. When wheat prices regionally had dipped the clergy instituted a tithing on wheat. So people had to give certain amounts of wheat to the government, well, to the church, which was giving it to the government, to stockpile, quote-unquote, stockpile, making the prices on wheat rise in scarcity. And again, making government more money while also taking wheat from the residents of Strasbourg. And here's the kicker. Then they would ship this wheat that was supposedly, quote-unquote, stockpiled to nearby cities to be sold for profit. And I'm sure you can imagine where that profit went. All of this while farmers were begging for seeds for the following year's harvest. This was corruption at a depraved level. So unrest started brewing, and an uprising act nearly took place before 1,000 revolting peasants were caught, rounded up, and executed, with the entire city being interrogated. And that's just, you know, something else for the people of Strasbourg to be stressed about. And it only seemed to get worse. 1507. A massive hailstorm with hailstones the size of fists smashes roofs, kills animals, and ruins crops. A new priest in Strasbourg begins telling his congregations that the entire city was infested with devils and God was punishing them for it. 1511. The bubonic plague reaches Strasbourg again, killing dozens. A particularly nasty winter leaves more than 30 inhabitants of Strasbourg frozen to death and the rest of the inhabitants hungry and destitute. 1513, yet another potential revolt is ratted out and crushed, with more being publicly executed. 1514, another brutally cold winter, and another season of hunger. It just, you know, it just keeps getting worse and worse. So, by 1516, two years before the epidemic, hysteria had begun to grow in the region. A woman began saying she's seeing the ghost of her dead husband holding his own severed head in his hands. And once this tale begins to circulate, other residents of Strasbourg begin saying they're seeing similar sightings of their own dead relatives. The clergy was unnerved by this, believing the devil was sending these people into their city to terrorize the inhabitants. Those who weren't seeing the spirits of the dead relatives were hearing the stories, and it didn't help that the same year, the printing presses of Europe started printing the tales of the gory exploits of crusaders rampaging through Turkey and the Holy Land in graphic detail for everyone to read then to top it all off, the winter of 1516 and 1517 was one of the worst on record, with temperatures falling below freezing and staying there for weeks. And that led to a widespread famine in 1517. Those who could not grow food had to purchase what little there was to eat, which was priced exorbitantly. Stories emerge here of what came to be called a great mortality in 1517, where hundreds in Strasbourg perished of Malnourishment. So we're seeing this hysteria start to grow. And in this vein, as we're looking at it through this lens, we can see that the dancing plague was not necessarily like, it's not like, oh, everything was great and hunky dory and suddenly everybody started dancing out of nowhere and then it went away and no one ever, and like that's all. There obviously were things leading up to this. And we're getting to my ultimate theory uh, surrounding this, which we'll, we will get to that in just a second. But, um, Got a little bit more to get through. So by 1517, families who had taken out loans in 1516 in hopes for a better harvest were defaulting on those loans. Records do exist proving that hundreds of debtors came to Strasbourg begging for extensions on their loans, many of which were not granted, and property and other goods were threatened to be repossessed by the lenders. Here, people begin going to the church out of desperation, asking for alms to repay their lenders, and here we find even more corruption. So, no, these people are going to the church for help. The church are the ones in control of the government. The government is the one taking these people's wheat and selling it to other cities. And the people are going to this same church for help. So, let's see how that goes. How that went was monks and priests Suddenly transformed into slick financiers, offering to send the debtors off with pouches of gold coins, with the promise that the monks and priests will get their loan back, along with a cut of whatever harvest was coming. and And the gross way that they leveraged their closeness th- th- that they leveraged uh, their debts here was that the monks and the priests said their closeness with God would help them uh, pray for a good harvest. That's how they got the debtors to approve more loans, because they insisted they will ask God directly for a good harvest, when in reality, they knew the church could easily take possession of the farms when they defaulted on that loan. The early spring of 1517 brought some relief, as there was no rainfall for some time, and temperatures rose pretty quickly, bringing an early beginning to the growing season. Farmers were overjoyed and they believed that the priests who had loaned them money had asked God for a good harvest. It was all going to be fine. Everyone was going to be great. We were all going to be fine. It was great. And then it all came crashing down. Very suddenly, heavy rains and a cold spell blasted the region in late April, which froze all the crops that they had just sown. And it forced the farmers to use what seeds they had left to restart the growing process. Months later, with the malnutrition being an epidemic of its own, smallpox tore through Strasbourg, flooding the morgues with the dead and the hospitals with the dying. And then, for the second time in less than a decade, bubonic plague showed up yet again. And then, see, if this wasn't all bad enough, here's the kicker. In late 1517, from his pulpit, the bishop presiding over Notre Dame, Notre Dame, sorry, made the proclamation that the people of Alsace simply had become so sinful that God had completely forsaken them and that was the cause for why the region was plagued by so many ailments so it seems like this place just got hit so hard and how could have things how could things really have gotten this bad they were never this bad before well there are a few coincidences here that explain why it seems so bad First of all, we got to talk about the Gutenberg Press. (laughs) If you went to middle school in the United States of America, or most Western nations for that matter, you'll be familiar with the name Johannes Gutenberg and the invention of the printing press around 1440. Before then, every copy of every book was handwritten, usually by monks in monasteries, and news was usually passed from person to person verbally. Big regional or world news was delivered by authorities such as clergymen or by hailers with proclamations in the town square. With the arrival of the printing press, it became possible for news to be transmitted much more easily. By 1500, there were an estimated 20 million copies of books in Western Europe. Newspapers began popping up, up, and by 1480, there were over 100 printing presses on mainland Europe distributing news for everyone to read when literacy skyrocketed. So look at it this way. In the past, when there was an outbreak of a disease in a neighboring town, no one would hear about it until it spread to your town. If there was an army invading a neighboring country, you generally wouldn't know unless you had family there who fled the violence and came to you for shelter. With the invention of the printing press, suddenly, every bad event that took place anywhere nearby was documented and distributed. Suddenly, you were hearing of bad things happening all over. Invasions from the heathens, diseases from the north, uprisings, executions everywhere, corruption, you read about it every day. And the world seems so much worse, even if most of it didn't even directly affect you. Huh, that seems kind of familiar. Anyway, it was at this moment that we reach 1518, where a young woman, Frau Trofea, has spent the last 20 or more years of her life growing up in a region in distress. In the modern day, there's a lot of talk about what we call mental breakdowns. The term is used really liberally, and I've had, I've had people tell me they had a mental breakdown last week, and it's a smile on their face, sarcastic chuckle. However, most clinical psychologists have abandoned the term in recent years, but a mental breakdown is generally characterized by a prolonged period of stress that culminates to render someone generally incapable of functioning normally. We're not talking about being late to some things or crying once or twice and being overwhelmed. We're talking missing days to weeks of work, the inability to get out of bed in the morning. We're talking a constant feeling of just hopelessness, impending doom, erratic mood swings, not eating regularly, they're, they're not thinking about personal hygiene. There's, there's a host of symptoms for this. And in the most extreme cases of a mental breakdown, it can lead to paranoia and psychosis. <laughs> I actually have lost track of how many definitions I've done this episode. I think we might might be at a new record. I don't know for sure. But uh, the word psychosis is used to describe conditions that affect the mind where there has been some loss of contact with reality. When someone becomes ill in this way, it's called a psychotic episode. During a period of psychosis, a person's thoughts and perceptions are disturbed and the individual may have a difficulty understanding what is real and what is not. Symptoms of psychosis include delusions, which are false beliefs, hallucinations, seeing or hearing things that others do not see or hear, and other symptoms can include incoherent or nonsense speech and behavior that is inappropriate for the situation. A person in a psychotic episode may also experience depression, anxiety, sleep problems, social withdrawal, lack of motivation, and difficulty functioning overall. Untreated psychosis can eventually lead a person to have a psychotic break. The definition of a psychotic break is when an individual's mental health worsens to the point where they no longer recognize the world around them. Knowing this, I find it totally plausible that Frau Trofea, and pretty much everyone in Strasbourg were prime candidates to have a serious mental breakdown. She probably wouldn't want to have told anyone about how she was feeling simply because you didn't talk about your emotions back then, and if you felt that sad... A doctor would probably cut you open and let you bleed for a while to get the sad out. And with all the talk of demons infesting the town, I'm sure she was afraid that there was a demon attached to her and was afraid she'd be accused of being a witch or something of the sort, when in reality, she was growing up under some real nasty conditions. Strasbourg was a breeding ground not only for physical, but for mental illnesses at that time. So Frau has a nervous breakdown. And it just gets worse. We know she was married at the time, and it's possible her husband didn't know how to handle it, so she just deteriorates. Eventually, that nervous breakdown devolves into psychosis, and she can no longer discern what is real and what is not. In a psychotic break, she walks out into the street and starts dancing to music that only she can hear because some voice in her head is telling her she has to do that. That's my theory, and maybe case closed there. But that, does, that doesn't totally explain why hundreds of other people joined in. Well, we know that most people around Strasbourg were dealing with many of the same things that Frau was dealing with, and they could also be teetering on the verge of a similar psychotic break. Now, we've talked about mass hysteria, and something very similar to mass hysteria is mass psychosis. Many people can begin seeing things that aren't there. There's not much scientific explanation for how that works, but it's often led or begun by a single person. I mean, think of it this way. Hitler led most of Germany to believe that there was a global cabal of Jews plotting to enslave the whole world, and everyone genuinely believed it with virtually no evidence. Hundreds of people in England insisted they had seen spring heel Jack in the 1800s, a roof-jumping demon, when there's no real evidence that he ever existed. You can even argue that the Cold War was a period of mass psychosis, where the United States government convinced everyone that all of these Russians were everywhere, Russian spies were everywhere, and that communism was this demonic ideology. And conversely, the Soviet Union convinced their populace that capitalism was the most evil thing that there was on this planet. I don't care what your political beliefs are, you can't deny that that level of propaganda from the Cold War is a little bit overboard. I mean... Damn, you can even argue that we're in a period of mass psychosis right now where large masses of people believe things when there is obvious evidence to the contrary, and they believe things even when that dire- that, that evidence is directly presented to them. Now, I'm not going to give too many examples of that here, but I know every person listening to this podcast has encountered that. All humans are connected in ways that we can't explain. We feel things that people around us feel, and we think things that people around us think. Mass psychosis wouldn't make sense if that wasn't true. So, in my opinion, it makes sense that all the with all these people living under immense amounts of stress for decades at a time living in squalor, punished for dressing a certain way, starving constantly, being robbed by their government, distrusting their church seeing their friends executed in the streets for speaking up. I mean, I can see why when one person has a psychotic break and starts dancing in the streets, it could just be the first domino to fall and lead to a cascade of psychotic breaks leading to mass psychosis in Strasbourg, exhibiting itself as a sweeping dancing plague with the residents dancing to music only they can hear. And that is what I believe led to the strange plague of dancing that beset the city of Strasbourg in the Holy Roman Empire in 1518. Case closed. There's something else that's kind of weird that I actually dug up before I, uh, well, I I mean, I'd finished writing all the episode, and there's something that's kind of weird that I, not weird, but in my opinion, it's connected. But the... Martin Luther, y'all who knew Martin Luther as he founded Lutheranism, he started the, the Protestant Reformation, like, really, really important in the in Christian circles. He actually nailed the 95 theses that he thought needed to change about the Catholic Church on the door of the cathedral in Strasbourg the year after the Dancing Plague. So in my opinion, it's very possible that he saw what happened with the Dancing Plague and he was like, bro, obviously something is terribly wrong here. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But anyway, thank you for listening to the podcast. Thanks for joining us here today on Tanner Talks About Stuff That that Happened. I'll be back next week with yet another episode. I'm excited to share that with you all. If you enjoy the podcast, remember, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, drop a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. It really means a lot to me and it gets more people involved with this podcast, which, which, I mean, helps me fulfill a little dream that I have. Please tell your friends, tell your family, and I will catch you all next week. See you around.